All right, let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, thank you that we have this privilege of opening your word. We know that it is your word, that it is inspired from you. And so we know we'll hear from you this morning. And I pray, Father, that in my articulation and in the hearing of each one, that there would be no marring of your voice, but only a full declaration of what you've actually said. We want to to know you and your word, your grace, your mercy, and your call. We pray that you would minister in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so raise your hand if, if you remember Craig Sager. He was known for his obnoxiously loud suits. He was a well-respected sideline reporter at NBA games, mostly with uh, TNT. In 2016, he died after battling leukemia. And I, I saw an article this past week about some serious conflict in his family. Now, we can't know what's at the heart of it. We can't know the ins and out of it. So as we talk about this, this is not about any individual involved. It's about the source of conflict. It's about the fact that conflicts can arise. So we, we really can't know what's at the heart of this problem. But according to what has been reported, his oldest children were completely cut out of his will. His second wife wanted nothing to do with his older children except, except for the bone marrow and stem cells that his oldest son, named after him, had twice donated. Here is a quote, a recent quote, from Craig Sager II. Nothing like getting served, pestered by sheriffs, and taken to court over a will that myself and my sisters are not only 100% excluded from, but do not even have any interest in contesting in the first place. Thanks, Dad. Again, we don't know what truly happened here. The bigger point is, people don't intend things to end this way. People don't intend things to end this way. Life is messy, and relationships can be fragile. Remember this, believer. Before you and I are in conflict with others, you and I are at conflict with God. Before that contention goes horizontal, it has already arrived from a vertical plane. Satan knows this. To disrupt the unity and harmony of the Garden of Eden, Satan had to convince Eve that God did not have her best interests in mind. He was successful at this, and it created a problem between Eve and God, and then it created a problem between Adam and God, and then it became a problem between Adam and Eve. Satan's work resulted in Adam and Eve hiding from God, and then blaming the blame games began. Before Cain murdered Abel, he was first at conflict with God. The Apostle John makes this statement to help us to really capture this idea. It's important. In 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21, God's Word says this, If anyone says, I love God, oh, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a, what? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. James shed some light on this as well. 
James does a marvelous job. Of course, he's inspired by the Spirit, so we're not shocked that this is a marvelous job. But listen, you're in James chapter 3. I want for us to look, beginning in verse 13, from 13 down to 18, and shedding light on this subject that our external conflicts show something of our inner man. Of our inner man. He says, beginning in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Ooh, 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 it's me! I'm the wise one! I'm understanding! Yes! We all think so. Not all the time. But as a general rule, you think you're in the right. Right? Like you've got a problem with someone and you think they're wrong and you're right. Who's wise and understanding? That's me! And James says, well, let's think this through. Oh, you wise and understanding one. He says, by his good conduct or actions, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Let's show that you're wise by what you do and say. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, if you have bitterness, if you have selfishness, if you're only seeking yourself and your best and your understanding, guess what? You ain't wise. And if you think you are and you say you are, you're just lying and the facts demonstrate it. Could he be any clearer? Probably not, but he goes on and it clarifies some more. Verse 15. This, the kind of wisdom that is being demonstrated in verse 14, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. In other words, this is just common. This is, this is what Satan does. This is what unsaved people do. This is what comes out of our flesh. Thinking we're wise when we're fools. This is normal. This is our natural state. I think he's very clear. He goes on in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So it leads to more problems, right? When we are locked into our own way, our own thinking, and our own desires, what happens is not only do we have conflict with others, we just involve ourselves in all kinds of things that are not helpful. So he gives us some other insights here in verses 17 and 18. Very clear. But the wisdom, this is contrasting, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then what? What is peaceable? It's it's at peace with God and then at peace with others. It's those that seek peace. Now, let's not, we're going to keep reading in just a moment, but so that we don't miscommunicate, Paul gives us outstanding clarity on this item of being peaceable. In Romans 12, 19, he says, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Just because you are at peace with God and then you are seeking peace with others doesn't mean that every relationship will be at peace. The issue for us to deal with is, am I the one who is causing conflict or not seeking to alleviate conflict? Our responsibility is to not only demonstrate peace, but seek to enact peace in our relationships. And some people won't have that. So if there's a a relationship in your life and it is damaged, what is your job? 
to seek reconciliation, to seek peace, to offer reconciliation, to offer forgiveness, to offer peace. That doesn't mean it will result in peace. But as much as it depends on you, you'll live peaceably with all men. And so as James describes the wisdom that's from above as opposed to the wisdom that's from below, the wisdom that's below is earthly, sensual, or um, of our senses, and demonic. The wisdom that's from above is pure, then peaceable, he goes on, gentle, open to reason. Open to reason. That could be read sweet reasonableness. It could be uh, willing to yield in another translation. It's a, it's a good word. Willing to, willing to interact peaceably with others. To, to hear. To hear from them. To not just combat what they say instantly, but to actually be a listener before a speaker. James talks about this earlier, right? Every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. And if you're swift to hear and slow to speak, you'll also be slow to wrath. Why is that important? Well, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. So we must be those that are open to reason. We can listen. He goes on and says, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Listen carefully to verse 18 now. And a harvest. We like harvests, right? Harvests result in pumpkin pie or pumpkin cobbler or apple pie or apple crisp, right? The harvest comes forth. A harvest of righteousness. Boy, this is better than apple pie. This is a harvest of that which is right in alignment with God. This is a divine gift. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. Whoa, wait a second. Before you harvest something, you have to sow something. Before the apple tree ever grows, you put something in the ground first. Well, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who what? Make peace. So God is telling us about what it's like to be a peaceable person. Satan knows that if he can disrupt our relationship with God, he can disrupt our relationship with others and vice versa. If he can relate, uh, if impact our relationship with others, he will impact our relationship with God. Either way, either way, he, he gets what he's looking for, which is us out of harmony with the Lord. Conflict disrupts our relationship with God. That is a clear and easy concept that scriptures convey to us. If we are at conflict with others, generally speaking, generally speaking, we are not walking in harmony with the Holy Spirit. Why can I say that? And I said generally speaking, right? As much as it depends on you. There are times when, when you can be at peace or trying to be at peace with others and that doesn't happen. But as a general rule, when you and I walk in the power of the Spirit, we're at peace. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. You got it. Smart people. Peace. The Spirit produces peace. The Spirit brings forth a harvest of peace. How? By sowing a right relationship, a surrendered spirit to the Lord. Conflict is a result of selfish pursuits. It's, almost, it's an almost sure thing. The book of Proverbs 13 and verse 10 says this. And this is, this is the old, old King James translation because it's how I have it memorized. Only by pride cometh contention. Please 
Let that one resound in your ears. Let that echo around in your mind. Only by pride cometh contention. So where there's contention, pride is involved. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sure thing. Conflict is produced and results in further carnality. So car, carnal, excuse me, conflict is produced and is, um, results in further carnality. Take a look, please, at 1 Corinthians 3, just for a moment. So carnality produces conflict and results from, conflict results from carnality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking to a group of believers now, he's not talking to the world, he's talking to a group of people that have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. He calls them in the first chapter saints. He says, you are the ones that are waiting. You're waiting for the the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks very uh, confidently about their salvation. And here in chapter 3, he speaks about something that's that's going wrong with them. In verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Well, we're all of the flesh, right? We all have flesh. We're all flesh, uh, bone, and blood. Right? He's not talking about our physical uh, uh, comprising. He's talking about the fact that we are, we are fleshly people. That's what he's talking to the Corinthians. He, you are not spiritual right now. You're not walking in the Spirit. The Spirit is not controlling you. Instead, I'm talking to you as people who are controlled by the flesh, as babies or infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. For you are still in the flesh, or of the flesh. For, and here's the reason, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He goes on and talks about the fact that the, at, at essence was their spiritual lineage. I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. Oh, no, no, no. Peter. Peter's the way. Well, he doesn't say that in this text, but you get the idea. And then there's the spiritual, spiritual group. Well, I was baptized by Christ. You're not getting the job done here, folks. It's not about dividing. It's not about conflicting. It's about exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's remember Him. Let's remember Him. And when we don't, it's because our flesh has overtaken us and we're allowing our flesh to rule. Instead of our flesh being dead, like it's supposed to be crucified with Christ, our flesh is very much alive. And while it's not supposed to have dominion over us, sometimes we yield to it anyway. And that's the problem that's going on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Conflict is produced and results in further carnality. Another concept that we have to see, and this is it's really getting us closer and closer to our passage in the book of Philippians. Conflict destroys conflict destroys the testimony of the gospel among the church. Conflict destroys the testimony of the gospel among the church. Take a look please at one passage then we're going to head to the book of Philippians, John chapter 13. The gospel of John 13. 
This is after the Lord Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples. After he speaks to them about the betrayal. Before he goes off to the Garden of Gethsemane. He gives them this instruction beginning in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as or in the same way. I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Okay. So, loving one another is a clear picture that Jesus is our Lord and our Master and our Savior, right? We're followers of Christ. Then, if that, since that's the case, what is being told when we are at conflict? What's the opposite of loving one another? Well, kind of warring with one another, right? Well, what's the opposite of being Christ's disciples? Not being His disciples. So what happens when those that are called by God's name, that are the children of God, that, that have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, are not loving one another? Well, there's conflict. And the testimony of the gospel has been distorted among us when that takes place. So, head over to the book of Philippians, please. Chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This was our text last week. Philippians 1, verse 27. We we looked at verses 27 to the end of the chapter. We're just going to jump into verse 27 for a moment. Philippians 1, 27 says this. Only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, listen carefully, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As we come to chapter 2, which is our text this morning, Paul is expanding upon this call to live our lives in a way that the gospel is displayed. And that call is only fulfilled when we do so with one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not striving side by side at each other. So the whole concept is displaying the gospel during church life, and as those that are the church, displaying the gospel in our lives. And he says, this takes place with one mind, one spirit, and it takes place side by side. We were using the term last week, gospel culture. A gospel culture. Meaning, the, the, the new culture that we have is, has arisen from what has saved us. And that gospel culture is based upon the very work of Jesus Christ. That gospel culture is supposed to be the the sphere in which we live and think and speak and act. So we're going to continue with that concept of of a gospel culture. And what we want to notice as we move into chapter 2 is first of all, gospel culture nourishes the souls of believers gospel culture, living our lives not for our own sake, but for the sake of Christ. 
laying our lives down rather than taking our lives up, giving rather than taking, taking the hurt rather than dishing out the hurt. Gospel culture nourishes the souls of believers. Look at verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, is there? Now, have you been united together with Christ? Like, did Christ save you? Save you? And the reason you know you have an eternal place with God and that you don't have any fear of condemnation ever is because you've been united together with Christ, right? Could you have anything more encouraging than that? So when he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, he's saying there is encouragement in Christ. Since there is encouragement in Christ. How about this one? He moves on. If there is any comfort from love. Now, have you ever been hurting? Have you been hurting from, from the loss of a loved one? Have you been hurting from some physical problem or some spiritual problem or, or some conflict? You've been hurting and someone came alongside of you and demonstrated God's love for you? Did it issue forth to you as comfort? Yeah. Yeah, so he's not, he's not putting forth questionable things but certainties. Since there is encouragement in Christ... Since there is comfort that comes from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, the word there, participation, is koinonia, meaning fellowship, communion, harmony. Since there is a participation in the Spirit, and since there is affection and sympathy, He has something to say to us. So now, before we move into what He has to say, which is verse 2, and that's our next, our next uh, concept that we'll discuss as we look at verse 1, this is the environment of the church. This is the culture of the church. This is what gospel culture looks like. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. All right, Because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, there is encouragement. The word there is Paraclesis, it has the idea of coming alongside and carrying someone along, lifting them up. They're on the ground, you pick them up. We appreciate the proverb that says, you know, if, if two walk together, it's much better because if one falls in the ditch, the other one can lift them up. We see this concept in Galatians chapter 6. If any man be caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, do what? Restore such a one. Don't Pounce on them, kick them, spit on them, say, you dirty dog. You lift them up. You try to restore them in Christ. Encouragement because of our union with Christ. Because of the love poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, there is consolation. It's another Greek term that has the idea of of giving uh, uh, solace when we're having difficulty. Because we've been joined together in one spirit, there is communion. Koinonia. Because of this relationship, we are knit together in love. That's the word affection. He uses the word splagnon. This isn't the first time in, in the book of Philippians he used that kind of gross-sounding word splagnon. Now, you know why it's such a gross-sounding word? Because it means bowels. We don't like to talk about bowels. Well, actually, some of us do because we, have really, uh, we haven't matured terribly. But, but when he's talking about bowels here, he's talking about our, our, the, our inner workings, our affections. And he's already used that term in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8 about his feelings toward the church. Listen to what he says in Philippians 1.8. 
For God is my witness how I, listen, I yearn, I yearn, I yearn for you all with the affection that comes from Christ. The affection that comes from Jesus Christ. God has given me a godly affection for you, He tells them. And He says, because there's encouragement in Christ, because there's comfort from love, because there's participation or fellowship in the Spirit, there is also this knitting together of our affections in Christ. This is a a certainty in a gospel culture. Gospel culture must have this kind of affection among its people. And then he says, because of our union together, there are sympathies. Sympathies at the end of verse 1. The word is translated in Colossians 3.12 as compassionate hearts. When you think about sympathy, you send a sympathy card when someone dies. You send send a get well card when someone is sick. What is the reason for this? Well, I want you to know that I'm feeling with you. I'm feeling with you. I care about what you're experiencing. The, 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 the difficulties of your heart and the difficulties of your mind and the difficulties of your body, I understand that that hurts. I might not understand your exact situation. I may not have gone through it, but I want you to know that I care. You know, that is emulating, that is emulating Christ to have that kind of sympathy. You know, one... So many passages of Scripture stand out to us that we just are so thankful for. We love. We love God more because of what He reveals to us in the Word. Let me just point your attention there. You don't need to turn. You can look at it later maybe. But one of the things that just so impresses me, and I hope you, about Jesus, is what God says about Him through the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 15. He's speaking about our great high priest. He's passed through the heavens He's he's in the heavenlies. He's he's seated at the right hand of God. Listen to what he says in verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The word sympathize means to feel, feel with. Think about this. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the the Son of God. God made flesh. We understand these things. He's the Savior of the world. The one who gave his life to bear the sin of God's people. We, We get all of this, right? We also know that he's the sinless, holy, second person of the triune God. Holy. The word holy means to be other than. Other than you can describe. Other than you can really conceive unless God reveals it to you. He is other than sin. This sinless, holy one sees us in our weaknesses, speaking of sin. And rather than pointing his just finger at us, he feels with us because he felt the pangs of temptation during his earthly life. He never sinned, but he felt the pangs. And when we sin, he feels the pangs with us. You know how you feel when you sin? You know how you feel when you misspeak to your wife or your husband or your children? It doesn't feel good, does it? 
your heart is broken. You think, why did I say that? Why was my facial expression like that to my child? I love him or her. Why did I do that? Your heart breaks. Jesus' heart, in this context, breaks not because of our sin, but on behalf of our weakness, he, he feels with us. That's impressive. I, I, don't, I don't even know what to do with that other than to say, God, thank you. Thank you for not condemning me in my, my frailties and my sinfulness, my weakness. Thank you for loving me in spite of who I am. Thank you for, for feeling compassion toward me in my sinfulness. This is what's being called for in a gospel culture. Folks, you've been mistreated. Some people have heard this, and I don't know, maybe you're one of them, and I don't, I, I don't mean to speak ill. Please understand me. I, I mean all the best in, in any statement I'm trying to make here. People have talked about being burnt by the church. I've been burnt by the church one too many times, and so I'm just going to have this superficial relationship with the church. I'm not going to invest myself again. Folks, you're following the wrong example if that's you. What example does Christ give us for those that burn him. Sympathy toward them. It's, 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 it's a hard and it's a high task. But it also, as we put our challenges in the context of the gospel, we start to say, Gee, maybe, my, maybe my problem is not quite as bad as I, as I thought. Maybe I ought to rethink this. And maybe instead of being bitter toward my brothers and sisters in Christ, I ought to have compassion on them because they're just um, of like sinful flesh, like I am. A gospel culture is one that is built upon encouragement and consolation and communion and affection and sympathy. Sympathy, compassionate hearts. The word is translated in Romans 12, 1 as mercies. Mercies. So a gospel culture nourishes the souls of believers. I hope, folks, just for a second, if you can look up, I hope when you come here, you feel nourished. That is our goal. Our goal is not to make you leave with your tail between your legs, to beat you down and make you feel guilty. Sometimes, sometimes there's a need for guilt, right? As we look at God's Word, it, produces, or it shows us our sin. But it doesn't leave us there. God's Word always shows us a solution. Christ is that solution. And so when we leave... If we leave rightly having worshipped, we don't leave with our tail between our legs. We, we, we live, leave exhilarated because of the, the God who called us out of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of his, his beloved Son. And so we leave rejoicing at how good God is and the forgiveness and compassion that is ours in Christ. And we ought to be producing that environment amongst God's people. And it will come forth as we surrender ourselves to the Spirit. This is, this is all supernatural stuff. You don't concoct it by saying, well, this new program we have here is to develop gospel culture in our church. You know what the program for developing a gospel culture in your church? Read your Bible pray, surrender your heart to God, and believe Him. Boy, that was profound. You should write a book. God already wrote it. We complicate things by having programs. But God just says, this is what a gospel culture looks like. It nourishes the souls of believers. Secondly, gospel culture seeks unity among the church. This is, it's, a, it's a twin concept here. 
that as we get into verse 2, because this is where he's driving it. He's saying, because these things are true, here's what you ought to do. Verse 2, complete my joy. This is the main injunction of the paragraph. This is as he's trying to communicate something. He wants them to fulfill or complete his joy. How, is, how are they going to do that? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Here's why. Allowing preferences to dictate our fellowship will erode unity and foster individualism. Allowing our preferences to drive us, which is separates us, fosters a spirit of individualism, and it erodes unity. This is in conflict with a gospel culture. What should be our main focus when we come in? The color of the pews. The color of the wall. The fact that there's a screen or two project, you know, two, two, two TVs. The fact that uh, there's a guitar or whatever, someone has a suit coat on or not, uh, they, they took a shower or not. What, what, what are all those things? What is it? You, can, you can stink and still worship God. Did you know that? None of that stuff is the, the main idea. Meeting at 10 instead of 11. Meeting at 11.30 instead of 10. What difference does any of that stuff make? That, that's just all function. What is the point? Worshiping. Almighty God, particularly with a focus on His Son, Jesus Christ. When we have the Lord Jesus Christ as our primary objective in worship, we will be unified. Yes? Yeah, because we recognize, well, I see Him perfect, pure, sinless, spotless, sacrificial, loving, kind, the coming judge. And because... I am in Him. There is therefore now no condemnation. Yes. This is a reason to, to unify ourselves. And when we're focused on Him and Him alone, there's not going to be a disharmony unless we don't believe what the Bible says about Him. And those items are issues for disunity. If someone disagrees with what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, now we have some reason to have a fight. When I say fight, I don't mean that literally. Something to contend for. But if we're on the same page about who Christ is and what He has done, that produces true, lasting unity. Thirdly, gospel culture is maintained through humility. Humility will obviously be our, the main topic of our discussion next week as we look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 5 and following. As we look at verses 3 and 4, notice what it says. Here's the main command of this, uh, these two verses. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The word conceit means vainglory or empty pride. Don't do one thing that's for yourself. Don't have yourself in view. Don't have your own desires as your chief end. Have the desires and needs of others. 
the contrast that he gives in the middle of it. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. All right, let's think that one over. How can I come into a church and say, you're more important than I am? You don't know what's going on with that person. Here's what you can know. God made male and female in His own image. After His own image created He them. So the person across from you, next to you, in front of you, behind you, they are made in the image of God. That, in and of itself, produces their significance. They may think differently than you. They may talk differently than you. They may act differently than you. They are made in the image of God, and thus they are significant. No one has to come in this place or leave this place with a low self-esteem. God made you in His own image. God has demonstrated His love for you in that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. This is good news. When we come together and we try to figure these things out, we, we, we want to we recognize the significance of one another. I want you to turn to a couple of passages of Scripture. We're going to come right back to Philippians. So if you want to put something in Philippians, we're going to turn to Romans 12 first. Romans chapter 12. We can mis- be mistaken in, in thinking about humility and say, well, humility says I'm, I'm a worm and no man. Uh, oh, oh, woe is me. I'm just a... I'm just a a lowly person. And that's not exactly what God has in mind when we talk about humility. When God talks about humility, He tells us to do this with a sober mind. Sober, meaning under control. Not not this, I'm the best thing since sliced bread, oh, I'm the worst thing that has ever happened. He's trying to get us to understand that there's a a mediating way to view humility. And, And what He says in Romans 12, I think, really helps us as believers, to have a humility that is not out of whack. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. If he stopped right there, you'd say, well, all right, well, then it's just about lowering ourselves, as the idea is in Philippians. But he goes on, and he gives us more context to figure it out. Look what he says at the end of verse 3. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So now he's talking about some giftedness that we've received. Hey, think of yourself soberly. Don't think more highly than you ought to think. Because whatever you have comes from God. Okay, so that humbles us, right? But also, you're a recipient of a grace gift. And so that brings it from the the dregs of society to God has gifted me to minister, right? It takes us into a a different place than just the, the, the doldrums and says, God has done something unique with you. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Yes? If you have... God Himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. And He has gifted you individually, 1 Corinthians 12, as He desires. You know what that means? There is nobody like you. 
Now I can think about that and laugh because you are terribly unique, aren't you? You know it. You're super odd. So am I. I could admit that all day long. I'm as odd as they come. And you have no idea the level of my oddity. I am unique. Okay, but that's not quite the idea. The idea is God has uniquely gifted you for a particular purpose, and no one else can be and do that which God has gifted you to be and do. Man, that is, um, that's not just putting me in, the, in the, the dumps over how lowly I am. That also says, okay, Lord, you've got a purpose here for me. I've got a job to do. Look at how he continues in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And so God speaks about our uniqueness. Look at chapter 15 now. God helps us to understand ourselves in, in a proper light, and then he tries to help us as we come to chapter 15, that my life is not about doing what I want and getting what I think I need. The other way to say it, and he's going to say it, is I'm not to be pleasing myself. Romans 15, beginning in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Who's the strong and who's the weak? Who knows? You don't know. And I don't know. So let's just say, let's take whatever instruction he gives us here and take it to heart and live in accordance with it. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and what? Not to please ourselves. Let each of us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To do what? To build him up. For Christ did not even please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Jesus is the example again. In sympathy, in laying down his life, and now here, not pleasing himself. In humility helps us to understand that life is not about me. That's hard to understand as a kid, isn't it? Isn't it? It's like... I wanted to do blah, 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 blah. And so-and-so gets to do blah, blah, blah. Can't I do blah, blah, blah? That's like, that's, this is normal, okay. And then we turn to 17, and we're still saying it. And we turn to 27, and we're still saying it. We turn to 37, and we're still saying it. And we're 47, and we're still saying it. And 57, and we're still saying it. You know, you get the idea. Here we are, 97 years old, still saying, oh, I, you know, I, I asked them a half hour ago for my yogurt. You know, see, everyone, everyone, you know, you know how it goes. We're always stuck with this problem of trying to please ourselves. It seems funny, but it's telling, isn't it? We all have this problem, and God is letting us know, listen, there's, there are other things to think about than your own desires. Verse 4 of Philippians chapter 2. So head back to Philippians 4, I'm excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 4. We're almost done. Do not fret. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So now Paul moves from the significance of personhood, you're made in the image of God in verse 3, to the interests of our fellow brothers and sisters. Now, 
Verse 4 is super unclear in the Greek. There are actually very few words here. So I'm going to give you the literal word order in the Greek. So you're going to enjoy this one. It's going to be super clear when we're done. Ready? Here's what the Bible says in verse 4 in the Greek. Not the of yourselves each, looking carefully, but also the of others each. You got it? Exactly. You don't got it. That's, that is odd phrasing, isn't it? But let's slowly think through it just for a moment. Not looking carefully only at yourselves, but also looking carefully at each other. Does that make more sense? Makes a little bit more sense? So, the word interests is not actually in the text. It's actually looking at each other. Looking at each other. Don't just look at yourself and what you need and want and desire. Look at others and what they need and want and desire. Look at what they bring to the table. Look at what they're dealing with. Don't just consider your own problems. You've got problems, I understand. Other people have problems too. Don't get stuck just thinking about yourself and your own problems. We all have them. But you know what? Sometimes our problems aren't as bad as someone else's. No one has it as bad as me. Really? You ever hear about the person Job? There's a lot of problems considering others. We can be aided in understanding this verse by considering what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Listen to what he says on the screen. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, he's not talking about everything. He's talking about the things that aren't specifically stated, right? He's not saying, hey, listen, if you want to murder someone, that's fine. Don't worry about it. That's not what he's saying. The things that are specifically stated as violations of the law are not lawful. But the gray areas, all all of those things, hey, listen, one person has this opinion, the other person has that opinion, they're lawful. They don't necessarily help. They don't necessarily build up. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The good of his neighbor. It's easy to have our minds on our own desires, but hard to consider the needs and good of others. The gospel points us to live in light of the needs of others rather than only our own needs. So, listen. Conflict in marriage. Conflict in our home. Conflict in the church. These distort the gospel. They distort the gospel. The gospel's clear. And yet I'm supposed to be a living epistle. A letter written to display the gospel. And when I'm in conflict with my wife, with my children, or with people of the church, that gospel that's so clear and bright and shining is shaded and enshrouded. It's darkened and it's distorted. We must, as the author of Hebrews commands, strive for peace with everyone. We must, like Paul calls for us in Romans 14 and verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. If, if you are not pursuing peace in your relationships, 
There is something desperately wrong with your version of Christianity. But we are not seeking peace simply for the sake of harmony. We must see a much bigger picture and a much bigger purpose. We seek peace to magnify and demonstrate the gospel. Before we can ever hope to maintain peace with others, we must be at peace with God. And the Bible tells us how we can be at peace with God. In Romans 5.1 it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we can have peace with God. How does a believer ensure that he seeks peace? There's a surefire way, folks. The Bible says in Galatians 5 and verse 16, this I say then, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Later on it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Right in the uh, first third of it is peace. I can ensure that I walk in peace and pursue peace and seek peace and maintain peace as I walk in the power of the Spirit. So the concept in Philippians 2, 1-4 through 4 is so very simple, but it doesn't make it easy. Why does it not make it easy? Because the inner churnings of my soul tell me I need to take care of myself. Oh, I've taken care of so many people for so many years. Now it's my turn. It's me time. It's time for, to take care of myself. You know, folks, one day we're going to see Jesus and all this stuff will be behind, behind us. He's going to make everything new, everything right. We will have perfect joy, peace, harmony, and servitude all the days of our lives for, for, forever in heaven. In the meantime, it's not me time. It's not me time. Just like in heaven, it won't be me time. It'll be his time. His time then is his time now. I am a pot in the hands of the clay maker, the pot maker. He's working. Let us place ourselves at his disposal that he might produce peace in us and through us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all you've done. Minister in us. Help us not to grow weary in the midst of dealing with the challenges of life, but instead that we would walk in the power of your Spirit and recognize that you are working something greater than we can imagine. And as we seek peace with others, it is not for the sake of ourselves and our comfort. It is for the sake of a clear declaration of the Gospel. Accomplish this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.